You are listening to Ouija Broads. This is Liz. This is Devin. Devin, today we're still on Skid Row, and I have even a further magnify, zoom in, enhance moment for us on the Skid Row. Uh Uh-huh. I don't think we set out to do this, but Skid Row has become quite literal in terms of we are specifically talking about stories that cross over this handful of blocks in downtown Seattle, which works for me because, first of all, there's a lot to unpack. And secondly, now I'm actually excited about going there. (laughs) Absolutely excited about going there. And this is a really interesting place that we're dancing around because we kind of picked up all of the surface level stuff. We talked Mm -hmm. about the mortuaries, the Second Lives of Seattle mortuaries, which are down there in Skid Row. Well, one of them is Butterick Building. And we've talked about Kell's Irish Pub, that haunted Mm -hmm. place. And Mother Damnable. Mother Damnable, right. Mm -hmm. I think we've, I mean, we definitely brought up the old Curiosity Shop, which is close. So we scooped all those little babies up. And then Liz went, okay, well, get out your shovel, Devin. There's there's more gold gold down there. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, we are dealing with one block. Mm -hmm. Would you believe this whole episode is about one block on Yesler Way? Can't wait. So I should say my primary resource for this episode is a book by Sydney S. Andrews called Boren's Block One, A Sinking Ship. A good read, very chatty, and even has call-out boxes for stories that he just thought were neat, but didn't really go in with the rest of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, okay, so you made a you made a Ouija Broads episode. Your, yeah, I was going to say, your long, chatty, full of call-outs. Did they just describe you? <laughs> long. That's a word. Long. Long. All right, so I sent you an image on your phone at the beginning of this because I wanted to be able to draw your attention to it. This is a map of downtown Seattle, specifically Mm -hmm. near Pioneer Square. And Yesler Way, as you can see, runs right across the belt of it, right? It's, Mm -hmm. It's horizontal, about halfway down this map. And like a little Dorito... Since this thing labeled the sinking ship parking garage. Yeah. But what do you notice about the street layout above and below Yesler Way in this picture? They are kind of the way I quilt, where everything's (laughs) on a grid until a point. They're on a grid (laughs) until they're not, my friends. And they are... Definitely not. If if you've ever looked at Seattle from a map, they call it the wagon wheel because that's how we laid out our streets. And this is, oh, Nellie, you're at a wagon wheel spoke where this thing is just coming to a teeny little point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically north of Yesler Way, the streets, you know, first, second, third, fourth, they run parallel to the shoreline. Mm-hmm. And south of Yesler Way... The streets are straight up and down north, south, east, west streets. Well, they also run parallel to the shoreline because the (laughs) shoreline shoreline takes a little jog. Although, in fairness, I think that we put some of that like that. Oh, for sure. (laughs) For sure. It's made of trash. So, yeah, exactly. We built it that way. So, we can take ourselves back in time to those very, very early settler days. 
in Duwamps, which now I feel bad laughing about because I think it was actually close to the Duwamish word for the area. So sorry okay. about that. I just mm. assumed the white dudes fucked it up. But good assumption. I had it. I had reason to think that <laughs> they were not on much of a roll with the names. <laughs> they were not. No. Now. You can picture, you know, this small collection of cabins, these handful of individuals who have done the Oregon Trail and Mm -hmm. then some to come up, and they are portioning out this land because with Chief Seattle's heritage, with his parentage being from both Duwamish and Suquamish tribes, it was a pretty chill, calm, peaceful area. There were plenty of resources to go around if nobody was a dick. And it was a relatively settled, relaxed, easy place to be in. Now, immediately, white people started chopping it up and saying, this one is my one because that's what we do. Notably, there have been no treaties at this point. The government just says, (sighs) you can have some of this in this area that they have absolutely no legal claim to, even by their own flimsy system. They just straight up were like, there you go. (laughs) Big colonizer energy, y'all. Big colonizer energy. What happened with this little cattywampus quilt is (laughs) you had more than one person doing the surveying. Okay. You have Carson Boren, who is Arthur Denny's brother-in-law. Okay. And they like to locate with some regard for the shape of the shoreline. So there's some angles on, like, Denny's Front Street, for instance, which is now First Avenue. Mm -hmm. That's what Denny is doing, and that's what Boren is doing as surveyors, is they're saying, okay, Okay. there's going to be an angle to this so that the streets kind of proceed down from the hills to the shore. Okay. And what Doc Maynard is doing (laughs) is lining it up north, south, east, west. Yeah. And that's all great until they meet. (laughs) And and nobody wants to change what they're doing. So when you look at that map, this sounds made up. But that's literally why that triangle is there. Is because Doc Maynard didn't want to change his system, which is why Yesler (laughs) Way is being a belt. And Denny and Boren didn't want to change their system, which is why 2nd Avenue is doing a jaunty diagonal thing. (laughs) And when you put it all together with Second and James and Yesler Way, you get a triangle. And that triangle, go ahead. This is the high school group project equivalent. Seriously, we'll just it's we'll like, just put our all our parts together at the all end. Parts together. You did those slides. I did these mm-hmm. slides. The teacher will never notice. It's gonna be great. Looks great. Seamless. <laughs> Seamless. <laughs> yep. They legitimately put the city together this way. Good lord. True story. That little triangle is Mm -hmm. Boren's block one. Because when Boren was plotting this all out as a surveyor, that's the number he gave it. Mm. So the Duwamish and the other tribes of the area were the first unlucky owners of this block. Yeah. But they would by no means be the last. (laughs) Maynard and Boren ended up deeding this land to Yesler, who we've talked about. We know he was a bit of a real estate collector, but, you know, this is on Yesler way. He (laughs) 
he he flips a lot of real estate around the Seattle area. This is what right? he does. He's he's me and Monopoly. I just buy up properties yeah. with no intention to conglomerate. It's just Nothing nice to all. have. It's just nice to have. Yeah. So in 1859, Yesler sells it to a man named Wickoff. Okay. Wickoff mortgages it to a guy named Luther Collins. And in both cases here, they're they're essentially homesteading on the land. Mm. It's being used for a house. Wickoff is an interesting dude. He was a member of the first official white party to go over Snoqualmie Pass. Oh, okay. And he was also a blacksmith, liveryman, sheriff, and tax assessor. <laughs> because again, there's like seven dudes. <laughs> So this is like starting a club with your friend and you have to be the secretary and the vice president. Luther Collins was a very Western lawless guy. Okay. He, well, as it says in this book, he had a nasty habit of killing folks he didn't like. Doc Maynard actually got two murder charges against Collins dropped. And somehow two murder charges is not any kind of bar to being appointed as one of the original King County commissioners. Yo, excuse yeah. you, Luther. Yeah. But he would, like, hang scalps on his fence. Fucking gross. Terrifying. Yeah. And I'll touch on this briefly, but essentially there was, quote-unquote, frontier justice Ugh. enacted on a Duwamish Indian man. Of course. They hanged him. <sighs> it happened essentially right there. There was another hanging in 1882, a lynching, essentially. Wow. And he was the sheriff at the time. Wickoff was. Okay. And this land that he owned but didn't live on was the site of this horrible crime. He wow. dropped dead that same year. It may not have been unrelated. That is <laughs> a lot. So wow. as soon as it passes into like formal ownership, we get a real one-two punch of the sheriff who could not protect people from lawlessness and this complete bananas violent dude. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So a murderer and a guy who couldn't prevent people getting murdered. And this is in the span of like 20 years, maybe. Wow. Now we're going to get into the Sawdust Girls era. Okay. In these days, in 1864, Wickoff sells the lot to... A group of three guys. There's John Condon, Amos Brown, and Moses Maddox. You don't need to remember all these names. I'll remind you who people are if they come up later. Why they need it is because at this point, if you come up to Seattle to do business, there's not really a great hotel option. Okay. So they say, okay, we're going to get Wickoff's land and we're going to get lots two, three, and four of Boren's Block One. They pay $1,500 in 1864. And they put up a 30-room white clapboard house. Okay. And they name it the Occidental Hotel. Oh, I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So this was one of Seattle's very first lodging places. According to this resource, at least, the only civilized establishment available to visitors in Seattle when the Occidental opened was Felker House, which was Mother Damnable's property. We all know how Mother Damnable felt about government men coming up her driveway. <laughs> yes, she, she didn't She nicked the census men. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you can't hold court for $25 a day yeah. in this place. 
we know what kind of things happened at hotels in Washington yes. Territory in 1860s, 1870s, like exactly what you would think. This is yeah. exactly part of the Sawdust Girls thing. We're a yeah. little bit before John Considine, but not by much. Okay. So business was good because there yeah. was definitely a need. There's yeah. some shifting around in terms of who owns it, which I'm not going to get into. It's not fascinating. But essentially, what happens is it becomes all John Collins' property. The other guys get out of the business, and now it's his thing. Okay. Now, there's a very stupid story about how that purchase (laughs) happened, and I had to bring it to you and tell you. So Amos Brown, Amos Brown had this share, and John Collins was buying it. And so he was going to go meet Brown with $3,000 worth of gold around his waist in a belt. And just before he's about to leave and get on the boat, there's a knock at the door. And there's some dude from the local tribe who's like, look, your gold belt is all anybody has been talking about for like three days. Your ass is going to be so thoroughly robbed and murdered. If you just throw your little britches out there with $3,000 tied around you like a a stake in a dog pit, what are you doing? They're gonna, like, they had a specific plan. They're like, you're not making it to Seattle, dude. You're not making it from Port Gamble to Seattle. As soon as they're outside Foulweather Bluff, they're gonna kill you and throw you overboard and say that you got drunk. This is the plan. Uh, he was like, oh, shit. I just imagine him strolling out looking like he's just won a WWF <laughs> bout. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I assume he was wearing it under his shirt, but I feel like at this point, I mean, it's a small town. There's not a yeah. lot of people with, I don't know, people walking around with $3,000 in cash these days. No! I would be very anxious about having that much cash on me. His friend who gave him the tip off helped him get through the woods when it was dark so that he could get in a canoe and get to Seattle. Oh, my God. Fortunately. Oh, my God. There was the first Occidental Hotel, which is about two stories, you know, not super fancy, but fancy for the time. Yeah. Collins eventually ends up with more of Block One, and in 1882 or so, he says, I'm going to expand the hotel. And it becomes this entire triangle-filling structure, four stories tall, high bay windows, cast iron moldings, apparently just beautiful. I think there are some pictures around. Remember the thing that happens in, like, the mid 1880s financially <laughs> it keeps I, I coming do. back around i feel like i never learned about that depression and it's so much more relevant to my interest than the <laughs> one that happened later as we know when times get tough financially mm-hmm. the people of seattle turn on the chinese immigrants in their mix the yeah. entire staff of the occidental is chinese oh gosh so an angry mob shows up ready to put them on that boat that they're putting other people on to get them out of there. Wow. The Occidental employees fight back, defend themselves, and they're basically like, yeah, come get us. Fine. Nice. I don't like picturing how stressful this must have been, but I'm glad that they were able to defend themselves. But Jesus, this this aspect, this racial aspect is going to be front and center in this one. Yeah. You'll see why. Okay. 
we've got these anti-Chinese riots. We've got the depression. Then we get a fire. Because you might as well at this point. (laughs) It's biblical. You gotta. Well, long story short, that's how we get the third variation of the Occidental. Because that thing gets completely burned to the ground. Just like everything for ten blocks on either side. Yeah. And in 1890, we get the third version, which is a little less elaborate and Victorian. It's okay. Romanesque revival, like everything else they were building yeah. in Pioneer Square at the time. Five stories high, though. 175 oh. guest rooms and five retail establishments on the ground floor. Then we get that other financial crisis. So we got yeah. the first one in the 1880s that made people very nervous, and then... It becomes an all-out panic. It yeah. makes the hotel into an office building. Nothing good happens until the gold rush strikes. And then <laughs> you're like, oh, okay, now I do need a hotel. This is good <laughs> to happen. But because of the time when it was an office building, he has somehow, I do not understand how, lost the name Occidental. And now it's just called the Seattle Hotel. Okay. And Bourne's Block One is now a hotel again, this time the Seattle Hotel. Wow. Okay. Yep. Do you know what the word Occidental means? Yes, it means pertaining to the West. So Oriental is pertaining to the East. Occidental is pertaining to the West. No fucking way. Yep. Marvelous. Thank you. I'm so glad I asked. Yeah, I'm glad you asked too. I looked it up before this just to make sure that it wasn't a thing that I had, like, made up and understanding for at some point. It makes sense that they would use it for hotels out west here. Yeah, it does. Now we've got the Seattle Hotel coming through the turn of the century. And there's a lot of ownership shuffling. Which, okay. again, we don't need to recap. Except that John Collins, when he passed away, had several heirs. The heirs got very ambitious with what they were going to do with the Seattle Hotel. Okay. And they got so ambitious that it became one of those projects that never gets finished. Yeah. And the estate never recovers from how much this remodeling project overran. Okay. This is not a good time to be a unfinished, unremodeled hotel. Mm-hmm. Because through... The early years of the 20th century, through the Depression, through the war, Skid Row is becoming what made it Skid Row, right? Like, not the log skid part, but the poverty and the addiction and the crime and the all, all the stuff that you associate with the Skid Row thing. And you've got Seattle Hotel right in the middle of it, which means it is essentially... Seattle's foremost flop house. Yeah. There's nothing going right for the Seattle Hotel here. It's getting foreclosed upon. It's getting handed around. It's not getting maintained or managed mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. It's just this tall, once beautiful building smack in the middle <laughs> of the Pioneer Square that's just decaying, essentially. Yeah. Literally prime real estate mm-hmm. that's yeah. being handed over to the elements and to a, a massive amount of flop dickery on the part of the owners. Yep. I said the racial stuff was very front and center in this yeah. one. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Yeah. <laughs> a lighthearted one, she says. It has a good ending. <laughs> I says. know, right? No. <laughs> 
America got so paranoid about what they thought was happening with Chinese people stealing their jobs is they said, no more can come. Yeah. So people from Japan said, all right, that's not us, though. (laughs) And so you get this wave of Japanese immigration that comes to take these jobs that are no longer available to Chinese people and somehow are not being taken up by (laughs) white Americans either. Weird how that works. Weird. Strange. Now, an important thing about when Washington becomes a state in 1889 is the state constitution prohibits the sale of land to non-citizens. And by non-citizens there, you can fully just substitute Japanese immigrants. That is the class of people intended to be excluded by this. You may not own land. All the opportunities and benefits of this being a state and a society are tied to being a citizen. Can you vote? Can you practice law? Can you be in a professional association? Can you be in a union? Can you own land? Yeah. Not if you're not a citizen. Okay. And in some cases, I mean, there were certainly real estate agencies and all kinds of organizations that made it more explicit, but they were able very efficiently and with minimal pushback to tie it to citizenship and then deny citizenship. Gotcha, yeah. Mm -hmm. So two terms that we need for this discussion are Issei and Nisei. Do you remember those from school? I feel like we actually got taught them. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I forget them. So I-S-S-E-I for Issei and N-I-S-E-I, basically the people who moved here and their children. Now, this is very structured for Japanese immigrants in a way that it was not for other people just because of the way that the politics of this worked out with Japan. Our immigration policy was such a hot and cold thing that there was a generation of people allowed to come for about five years, and then we shut the doors again. Oh, wow. And then 20 years later opened it. So there was a very, very distinct difference between being Japanese-American because your parents came over 25 years ago versus you just showed up. Mm-hmm. We're just going to hit some high points of being shitty to Asian people here. Uh, Let's see, 1913, California passes the Alien Land Law, prohibiting ownership of land by Mm non-citizens. Five years later, Seattle businessmen formed the Anti-Japanese League. Wow, wow, just like a club for racists right there. A club for, yeah, seriously, it is a a racism club. Mm -hmm. They're like, where are you going after work? I'm going to racism club. (laughs) I'm going to racism club, yep. Because I am this limited in my understanding of the world yeah. that I think that Japanese immigrants threaten the jobs of the doughboys in World War I when they come back, despite the fact that, for instance, 700 of those doughboys are Issei. Wait, no, <laughs> oh, the world is binary and it's <laughs> yeah. black and white yeah. and this is how it works. Yeah. Let's see, in 1920, the Seattle City Council enacted an ordinance prohibiting the issuance of a business license to any non-citizen. Fucking gross, you yeah. You can't even own a business. Congress, at the federal level, passes the Immigration Act of 1924, which permanently, it's intended to at least, permanently puts an end to all Asian immigration. Wow. We're just putting different groups of people through the ringer of doing these jobs that other people don't want to do and then blaming them for it. Yeah. But this time, (laughs) versus with Chinese people, 
where it was an all-out shooting war with riots and torches. Yeah. This case, that we got very organized and we put it all into law so that people couldn't do anything. You know, I feel like these settler folks are awfully persnickety with land that they themselves stole. <laughs> Weird how that works. Weird how that works. <sighs> I'm going to introduce you now to the interesting person in this story, and his name is Takemitsu Kubota. Okay. Now, he was born in Japan, grew up there. There's some early ambiguity about when he actually showed up, because it may have been in 1923, it may have been in 1926. As you'll recall, (laughs) the law happened in 1924. So if he was being vague, he had a real good reason to be vague. Sure did. But what we do know is that he came not long after his cousin did. His cousin named Fujimatsu Moriguchi. Fujimatsu shows up in 1928. So probably Takemitsu Kubota shows up around then, too. Let's take a little sidetrack for Fujimatsu Moriguchi. They are both from Ehime Prefecture. They both start out in Tacoma because there's a guy named... Kiyohachi Nishi, who's one of the first Japanese people in the Northwest. Oh, wow. Who's kind of like the hub. Like, he's like, here's who you're going to talk to. Here's how we can get you a job. Yeah. They stick it out in Tacoma, and then they come up to Seattle. Because there's railroad jobs, there's lumber jobs. It's growing very, very fast, as we know. So, Mm -hmm. in 1928, Kubota goes to work for the railroad in Montana. Fujimatsu opens an Asian food store. I bet you can guess what it's called. No way. Did he open Iwo Jamaya? Yes, he did. No way. It was way. originally at 1512 Broadway in Tacoma. It's called Uwajimaya because Uwajima is the city where he learned to be a fisherman and sell oh. things. And ya means store, so Uwajimaya. Now, it was in Tacoma until 1942 when some very disruptive things happened that yeah. we're going to get to. yeah. And after World War II ended, he relocated. So Moriguchi comes up to Seattle and opens a new Uwajimaya at 422 South Main Street on what used to be Doc Maynard's territory. So cool. That's what that's about. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Still here. Yeah. yeah, y'all, if you've never been to Seattle and you do come visit, put a stop in the International mm-hmm. District on your list and definitely mm-hmm. check out Ujamaya. It's so cool. Oh, man, I need to come out to Seattle and see you. Yeah, you do. I got okay. a list. That's all the time that we're spending with Fujimatsu. So now we're going to shift back to Kubota. Before I get into that, I'm going to bring up our sponsor, Jesse at Jesse Sells Land on Instagram or Washington State Land for Sale.com. Devin, do you have a house to tell me about today? Do I have a house to tell you about today? This is for when I move back to Spokane. Please do. On it, working on it. And you and I decide that we're going to combine resources to buy a house that not only has enough room for my art farm, Mm -hmm. also has enough room to park our mobile museum of the Pacific North Weird, has enough room for all of the chickens you could ever want. Excellent. And is really close to our old walking stomping grounds, because this is on Palouse Highway. Interesting. Okay, well, first of all, I need $5 million. Don't we all? 
<laughs> right? For $5 million, we can buy Casa de Leon. This is definitely a mansion. It's one of those things where the garage is nicer than, I mean, I love my home. I bought a very beautiful home, but the garage is nicer than my home. You know what I mean? Like where the, the doors look like portcullises, portcullis, whatever. They look like carriage houses, these beautiful, amazing wood doors. And there's like towers. It looks like there's a tiny little church attached. Everything here is a vista. They have an indoor water fountain. Excuse me? Like, that is how you know you've made it. When you have this long hallway vista where one half, you know, are these archways that open to windows that look out over your, you know, winery, country, whatever. And then at the very end, there is a wall-mounted water fountain. This place is just Like, not a drinking bonkers. fountain. No, not a drinking fountain, like a thing that you would throw a penny into and then a goblin grants you a wish. I was going to ask, do you think that you'd do that if you had your own fountain, your own water feature? Do you think you'd throw money in it to make wishes? Does it still work? I would not. One thing I always wanted to do, and I feel like I'm a pretty honest above the board person. I just like, who's going to stop me from breaking into a mall and then making like a hundred dollars cleaning out? The quarters from that fountain. That's what they did in the mixed up files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankenweiler. I remember it was okay. a YA book and they would get into the, into the fountains and collect the coins so that they could like do laundry and buy food and stuff because they were hiding out in a museum. Perfect. You buy this house and I'm going to hide out in it mixed up oh. files style and I'm going to like sneak out and steal your money and your food and live in your attic. You're going to be like a borrower, but a full-size borrower? This is not cool. Anyway, y'all, this house, like, we can all go in on it. It is big enough for all of us. It's got the exposed beams, the high ceilings that I love. Hello, it has a library with one of those ladders because it is a multi-story tall ceiling. I would break that the first day. (laughs) Just riding back and forth on it. I bet if you're rich enough to have a ladder like that, then they make sturdy ladders that you can't break by doing the bell for Beauty and the Beast move on it. Yeah, I'll spot you. I'll make sure that you, you know, land, duck and roll. (laughs) Wear a harness, right? It's a cool property. Yeah. But yeah, check it out. And thank you, Jesse, for your sponsorship as ever. And now we'll get back to the story. Takemitsu Kubota adopts the Americanized name Henry and likes to go by H.T., Mm. H.T. Kubota. His wife's yeah. name is Easter, which I think is exciting. Oh. Um, Easter Yoshiko. And she is a third category here called Kibe, meaning she was born in America to Japanese parents, but sent back to Japan for schooling. So that's wow. a really efficient way to make sure you have somebody who is chronologically completely out of touch with the other people <laughs> their age. And, yeah. Yeah. and is Poor culturally... Thing. Culturally has no frame of reference for anybody else. But given that we're talking about that she was born in North Dakota, I don't know who she would have been able to talk to anyway. (laughs) Poor Easter. Oh my gosh. What Easter and HT do is live in Seattle, raise three children, and operate hotels on Skid Row. Oh my gosh, cool. Let's talk about how he gets to Boren's Block 1. Mm-hmm. Now, Kubota comes back in 1930. He was working on the railroad all live long day, as one does. <laughs> and he starts working for the Grand Union Laundry Company. And then he starts working 
managing hotels, doing everything, doing housekeeping, doing maintenance, checking people in, managing the money. In Seattle, let's see, he managed the New Home Hotel, Crown Hotel, Rowling Hotel, Cherry Hotel, Arlington Hotel, Loring Hotel. Holy shit. They're all small hotels. Okay. And this is important because Kubota, in fact, it sometimes would manage two hotels, no employees. Whoa! Dude is on his hustle. During the Depression years, that was apparently what you had to do? I don't know. But he was everywhere working so hard to keep plates spinning in this business. But it also translated to a nice standard of living for Easter and the kids. Translated to him being a relatively well-known figure within his community, within Seattle. And he meets somebody in the business community who's not Japanese or Japanese-American. He meets Charles Cleese in 1938. He's the president of Arlington Hotel Incorporated. He doesn't really want to run hotels, mm-hmm. so it works out well that he meets Henry Kubota. Okay. He's like, you know how to run a hotel? Run this hotel for me. Cleese is a classic pioneer guy, basically. He's doing the real estate thing. I'm sure he hung out all the time with so many of the people that we've talked yeah. about. yeah. At this point in the story, it's 1941. We have Kubota, who's got a great track record of managing hotels. Mm -hmm. We've got Cleese, who is a real estate guy. And we have the Seattle Hotel falling apart in the heart of Skid Row. Okay. Kubota's like, I think I could do better than these guys. Because (laughs) it's basically being managed by... The company that foreclosed on it. No, okay. It wasn't owned by somebody who wanted to be in the hotel business. Okay. It was owned by somebody who couldn't unload it. I mean, I could do better than nothing as well, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. What has to happen in 1941 is H.T. can't buy it, of course. Oh, right. Because he's not a citizen. Right. So what he ends up with is three Nisei men, William Mimbu, Paul Yoshio Tomita, and Frank Kinamoto, who basically incorporate and set up a business that's able to own the hotel on his behalf. Okay. Even though he is, on paper, not that big a part of it, when you actually look at it, you're like, wait, so it costs them $12,000 to buy this place, and those guys put in 100 each? <laughs> <laughs> He's the angel investor of the story. Yeah. And also the guy who's going to actually, like, make it work. They formed the Seattle Hotel Building Corporation as HBC so that Kubota can actually run this place. Because, oh, what do you know? He's got all the stock and he's the president. (laughs) Yeah. Et cetera and so forth. So they hire him to manage the property. Amazing. Wow. Handpicked for that job. (laughs) Yeah. It's a good job deal where he's now no longer in a position of I'm kind of here on the tolerance of the people who actually own this hotel. This is now his business to run. And, yeah. you know, he's he's helped lift up these young guys. That's cool. Everybody's happy. Did I mention it was late 1941? Yeah, you did, Liz. You did. Yeah. These guys were riding high in December of 1941. So December 4th, the SHBC Board of Directors actually starts talking about whether they want to buy the Cherry Hotel, because that's one that Kubota has also had his eye on. He's been managing it for like four years, but now he's like, now we have 
a legal way to own this. Let's talk about it. And they're like, yeah, we should do that. We can have two hotels in our portfolio. That'll be so cool. And three days later, Pearl Harbor happens. Yeah. Everything changes. Mm -hmm. And it does not matter how legally Kubota was able to navigate through the racist policies of the time, because even more racist and even less legal stuff is about to happen. Yeah. This is when people of Japanese descent in the U.S. are starting to be rounded up through the internment camps. And I know I said we're not going to, like, cover these. We're going to discuss them briefly here just because it's crucial to the context of what happened with this block. Yeah. Initially, I think it might have been a little bit like we were with the pandemic. They're like, okay, it's it's going to be a disruptive, but it's going to be limited. <laughs> yeah. Gonna, no. At first, for instance, they thought that only Issei would be subject to incarceration, right? Because they're technically Japanese yeah. nationals. Yeah. And Issei should be fine. Yeah. So the Nisei folks start learning how to run these businesses, but whoops. February 19th, 1942, Roosevelt signs the executive order that says you can remove any and all persons from designated military zones. And the West Coast is divided into 108 exclusion zones. Damn. There are curfews. There are evacuations, which is a very anodyne euphemistic term Mm -hmm. for basically saying they would give you a week's notice to settle your affairs and then you'd report to the assembly center. Yep. Oh, I'm going to get wound up about this. I can't not. Here's another thing from the Seattle Hotel Building Company. So in December 1941, they're going, should we buy the Cherry Hotel? In March 1942, they hold a special meeting and they say, we're going to turn over the Seattle Hotel and the Cherry Hotel to Cleese, formally, yeah. because this is what you essentially had to do. Yeah. Find some white citizen that you could trust yeah. to take possession of your stuff and hope like hell they were going to give it back. Yeah. So Cleese essentially says, I'll do it for like 5% of the rent. Of, okay. Uh, I'm going to manage like the tenants, the retail tenants that I've been kicking around. Okay. And I'm going to manage your financial stuff. I'm going to run things for this company because all of the board of directors, everybody involved with this company is going to be affected by this executive order. And that's a lot of stuff to put on Cleese, but that's what they had to do. I mean, they could, for instance, they're in the middle of buying the Cherry Hotel. Buying property is a lot to navigate and a lot of unexpected (laughs) stuff comes up and you've got to make decisions yeah. May 1942, the Kubota family, they have three kids. There's HT, there's Easter, and then there's Doris, Thomas, and Irene, who's a newborn. They are incarcerated at what's now the Western Washington Fairgrounds in mm-hmm. Puyallup. Mm-hmm. Everything they owned that they couldn't carry was locked away in the Seattle Hotel. Yeah. And I cannot imagine, especially for Henry, just because I feel like I have a better sense of HT's whole deal, he had worked so hard. Yeah. His whole life. Yeah. And he had, first of all, done, you know, two hotels with no employees, yeah. working around the clock, so much effort, and finally yeah. Yeah. gotten the chance to do this, what was told to him as the right way. Yeah. And then it gets ripped away, and he just gets to sit. He gets to sit in the cell. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't do, not, not only didn't do anything wrong or is guilty of no crime, has not even been accused of a crime. Yeah. Absolutely. But is incarcerated. 
Now, Cleese is working very hard on behalf of the family at this point. He okay. seems to have been a pretty decent dude. He, for instance, wrote letters on behalf of Kubota talking about what a great guy he was, how responsible he was so that he could have more freedom okay. within the camp, have more leadership roles, maybe get to like go out and be on quote-unquote parole on a farm and things like that. In something that is going to make you want to just walk into the ocean even more, those three young men who were the Nisei stockholders of the SHBC, all enlisted in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Fuck. Serving in the European theater from 1943 to 1945 as, quote, some of the best fighters in the U.S. Army. Yeah. The unit received one Congressional Medal of Honor, seven presidential unit citations, 18,000 individual decorations, and nearly 10,000 casualties. All of the guys from the SHBC made it home. They do? Yes. I got chills. They come back from the war. Kubota and his family are released. But it's not like, welcome back. Oh, gosh, no. Good to see ya. I mean, that's not usually what happens when war is over. And there is a lot of racism that's still very overt because, of course... I cannot imagine something more empowering to racists than arresting people for being the wrong race. Yeah. And then chucking them back into the general population. Yeah. But Cleese had done a good job. Okay. He had juggled a lot of stuff. He had communicated. He wrote a lot of letters, you know, talking about, here's what we got everybody for Christmas. You know, you got me poinsettias. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what this letter is saying. It's a little, like, the subject, object is a little confusing, but I think that's what this is saying. Sure. And he did pretty good, and Kubota is able to step back in with some promise of this might work out. Okay. He buys the Arlington Hotel, which was Cleese's. Oh, wow. Kubota seems like he's going to be able to recover from this, but there's just normal life problems. Okay. There's conflict with some of the stakeholders. There's economic downturns. There is, unfortunately, in 1949, the 7.2 magnitude earthquake. Yeah. Which is quite hard on a very old, ill-maintained, tall building that's been there since the fire. So Kubota is now Dealing with a Seattle hotel that needs huge amounts of repairs is significantly damaged from an earthquake. Yeah. And he makes a strategic error, which I support him in making, which is he doesn't pay off a corrupt cop. Big big props, man. Support that. Yeah. But it's skid row, baby. Yeah. You pay the corrupt cops because they have friends in very high places. Mm -hmm. And in this case, because Kubota will not succumb to the shakedown, he starts to get politically and legally harassed by the city of Seattle in King County. Oh, wow. Now, Seattle, I love you, but you're not the good guy in this one. (laughs) You really are not. (laughs) What they can do is accuse him of aiding and abetting prostitution. They can say the Seattle Hotel is a public nuisance. Oh. Versus the other people that might own hotels in Skid Row, if they find Kubota guilty, he gets deported. 
no, oh shit. So again, it's a case of everybody is doing this, but you've decided to enforce it against somebody who could actually affect. Charlie, fair catch Carol is what he was called. Fair catch. prosecutor was using his office to send the message that if you're going to do business in my town, you play by my rules. Mm. And at that point, I can't even imagine where Kubota's head was at to go, I am playing by the rules. I have played by some very unfair rules for the better part of 30 or 40 years. And now this is what we're going to do? Yeah. Now, the Seattle Hotel, I can't imagine Kubota is that excited about it at this point. (laughs) He's getting older. Yeah. I bet it's pretty hard to, like, run two hotels with no employees at this point. And it's probably hard to get your enthusiasm back when you're like, well... Just when I finally owned this, I had to turn it over to the white guy. Yeah. Now I've got it back and it's been damaged by an earthquake. Yeah. And because I didn't pay protection money, they're going to use the fact that people get up to shit in hotel rooms, which is how hotel rooms have worked since they were invented, to get me in legal trouble and possibly deported. He's all funned out, is what you're saying. I think he's all funned out on the Seattle Hotel. I sure (laughs) would be. I would be. Now, there's something very important in Seattle in the late 1950s that there was not in Seattle in the late 1880s, and that is cars. Mm -hmm. We are getting to the origins of the sinking ship parking structure, which is what is there today on that site. I'm going to tell you about it, but first got to tell you how we got it. Okay. The company approaches him and says, we want to use this block of land this Boren's Block 1, to make a six-story office building with a parking garage. Okay. And he goes, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Be my guest. Take this cursed-ass triangle. Mm -hmm. Knock yourself out, because I think at this point, he has a pretty realistic understanding of what it's going to take to prop the Seattle Hotel back up, which is going to be a lot given that nobody actually wants to stay at the Seattle Hotel, as far as we know. Okay, yeah. Now, this is where Sidney Andrews' expertise comes in really handy, because I was able to gather the overall effect of the contract that was involved without having to understand the individual components. What was supposed to happen is that the guys... Let's see, they were called the Bruce Second and James Corporation, which sounds made up. Yeah, totally. They said they're going to make an office building with a garage. And the way that the lease is supposed to work is that it's their job to build it. He still owns the land. For 40 years, they'll get to lease this space from him. And at the end of that, there's a couple options for them to extend the lease but he's going to get the building. So this is a very long lease. He knows that it's going to be something that his kids are going to have to deal with, essentially, right? Because it's 1959. And, well, it's 40 years with two additional 10-year options. So it may be 60 years before somebody else has a crack at the building here. Yeah, and he's not a spring chicken. So like you said, this is going to be his heirs dealing with. Apparently, the contract is written in a way that is very, very favorable to the Bruce Second and James Corporation. Partly, unfortunately, because Kubota 
was using its corporate secretary, attorney William Y. Mimbu, one of the original Nisei guys, who is not a property lawyer. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Or perhaps was, but did not have experience with this kind of transaction. Yeah. You will have noticed that there is no six-story office building. <laughs> there at sure ain't. that little triangle. Mm-hmm. What there is, is a four-story <laughs> parking garage. Which, yeah. in the incredibly steep streets of Seattle, still manages to look like it is sinking. <laughs> and that is because... The the floors are angled. They are actually angled. It is not an optical illusion because it is a square building put into a hill. They actually are angled. Really? They designed it that way so that you can have street access to every floor of the parking garage. All four you can drive in and drive out because they looked at the space. And the thing about a triangle yeah. is it's really hard to put in ramps that you can do in a spiral. Oh, it's really hard to oh. use space efficiently by putting a circle inside a triangle. Oh, indeed. so they didn't—they couldn't use the parking ramp spiral. You know, here's how cars will go up and down. Thing. Uh-huh. The mystery that we're never ever going to answer with this contract is: Did Kubota know that they were never going to build the office building? Okay. I think to me, when I looked at the evidence for and against, I said it doesn't sound to me. Like, he knew that they were just going to put up a garage and be done. Okay. And the stories of it have sort of attributed a motivation to this company that we simply don't have evidence for, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Basically saying, you know, they started with the garage and they ran out of money before they got to the building, which is like, that's not how you make a building. This isn't (laughs) like Lego. This isn't Jenga. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's how I do the Sims. Went, yeah. fuck, I blew my 50K already. You only get one bathroom. <laughs> yeah, we can't make this any taller. We ran out of money. Yeah. We've done 40% of it. Here it is. Yeah. <laughs> the end. Thank it's God we finished. didn't start with the roof. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's more like, you know, a partially finished building is a frame and a structure. And yeah. So, yeah. I mean, this thing came out fully baked of... <laughs> What it is, which yeah. is sure something. Yeah. Although, to be honest, it's kind of growing on me. Oh, it's so, so weird. In 1962, the Seattle Hotel gets demolished. Okay. And people are furious. And I completely relate to this because I also get very mad about the loss of institutions and buildings and companies that I was doing nothing with. I just want them to be there in case someday I feel like it. I just like knowing they're around. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. People are so offended by this, so horrified that they lost the Seattle Hotel, because I'm sure if you walked through at 10 in the morning on a Sunday, all you saw was pretty architecture. Yeah. If you have not been inside the Seattle yeah. Hotel. Yeah. Is my personal theory on, on why you get so affectionate about that, but also it's, you know, the... <laughs> Wait, they can just do that because this is one of many beautiful but also earthquake-damaged buildings in this area from this time period. And if they're going to start there, when are they going to stop? Yeah. That's why that whole Pioneer Square area is a historic district. Oh, wow. Because people were so pissed about losing the Seattle Hotel. (laughs) How dare you take our flop house from us? How dare this is a historic vintage flop house. 
<laughs> yep. So it goes. It it's destroyed in 1962. In 1965, we get the sinking ship, as it is yes. called. Yes. If you're going to remove a historic building and replace it with something else, there's a couple ways you can go, right? <laughs> you can try to build something that kind of blends in. I've been seeing that yeah. a lot lately on, um, like, Riverside and Spokane, kind of over on the more, like, Trent Alley. Yeah. More on the east side. East side? Yeah. Of, east. of downtown. University district, I guess. But yeah. There's buildings that are not what were there originally, but they're made to kind of harmonize stylistically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or you can make a modern building that's just sort of bland and there, and you see that sometimes too. It's just, you know, default settings, building of the era. And then you can make (laughs) this thing, which looks like nothing I've ever seen. You could make this what is it? Bauhaus monstrosity. This, yeah, it looks like an art installation. It does. <laughs> this is a monument to concrete and wonky angles. Yeah, so the angles are very steep. It does really look... At, you have to look at this, folks. It it looks like a building has undergone some sort of horrible accident yeah. and is mostly underground and yeah. you should go help people. <laughs> and also, man, they just did not put any frosting on this cake it is the bluntest most undecorated plain ass unpainted concrete straight metal railings yeah thing yeah there was just not a lick of effort to make this attractive let alone attractive in a way that would work with the buildings around it not an ounce of pretension Clunker. Yeah, yeah. With that, it was unpretentious. <laughs> Just like that sawmill house. Yes. Now, this was, of course, distressing to Kubota because there's instant anger about this hideous building. Yeah. And it's apparently too complicated for people to understand. Like, look, yes, he legally owns the property. He owns the land, but he's not in charge of what they do there, and he cannot make them build the rest of this. <laughs> right? This is not under his control. He's locked in for 40 years, possibly 60. Liz. Like, this is not going to be something that he can do something about while he's still alive. <laughs> do not take this out on HT. This is not his fault. You throw this away. They did you the real estate version of what I do to yeah. you with treasures I find. Like, <laughs> you didn't want it, and now you're in charge of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you can't do remember, shit about it. Remember he had three kids, and oh, Doris yeah. was one of them? Yeah. She called it the ugliest building in all of Seattle. Yeah, Doris, you, you can sit with us. However, there's this amazing phenomenon that happens with old buildings. Yeah. Is that new buildings turn into them eventually. Yeah, right. So now we've had this damn thing for almost 50 years. (laughs) And honestly, compared to like the other products of the Amazon crane forest, I kind (laughs) of like this funky little thing. Yeah. It it stands out and I don't really think like a sore thumb, just kind of like a... Well, look at you trying something new with your hair. Well, <laughs> golly gee. I was going to say, it reminds me of, like, a toad. 
Like a toad just kind of sitting there. Yeah. A real dried out desert type toad with yeah. like spikes on it. And it's just like, fuck you, what? <laughs> what do you want? Yeah, right. Look at me. Isn't it hard enough? Do you have to come pile on? You can see what I'm dealing with. <laughs> now, we are not the only ones mm. who are charmed by this. It, in fact, in 2019, was crowned the coolest parking spot in the United yeah. States. <laughs> in the entire oh. United States. The oh. coolest parking spot. Uh, I don't yep. know that I would have gone that far, but I'm proud of it. I mean, I don't know a lot of cooler parking garages. I mean, there's got to <laughs> be one shaped like a boot or, you know, you drive into, like, a, a gargoyle's mouth or something like that, you know? Well, you're very good at designing parking garages, but we just learned. <laughs> I'm changing careers. Let me update my LinkedIn right now. <laughs> but, yeah, it is just sitting there like, like a layer cake somebody dropped. <laughs> Just chilling, but it's been just chilling for so long at this yeah. point yeah. that I think we're all kind of getting f- not just used to it, but fond of it. Yeah. Because I think now yeah. this is a generation of people who are not picturing the Seattle Hotel yeah. any more than the people in the Seattle Hotel were picturing the Occidental. Yeah. We're picturing the bland skyscraper yeah. that would replace it if yeah. something happened. Yeah. So I think it would be cool if they could put actually an office building on top of it it's you're still going to be able to see this very interesting parking garage yeah so it was built by these architects who did not think that they were making a monstrosity or the coolest parking Mm -hmm. garage in Mm -hmm. america they were just doing a job because (laughs) they did i don't think the other stuff they did was that exciting from what i can gather yeah but one of their kids weighed in when it won the award and basically said, my dad was a Seattle guy. He loved it here. He would have been tickled pink to know that a Seattle parking yeah. garage could win coolest parking spot in America. And he would have been very happy to be involved with it. There was, in around 2008, potential but not realized movement on the whole issue of the sinking ship. Because... Seattle wanted to expand the monorail system and thought that it would be a fantastic location for a monorail station. And Mm. you can see the logic. Like, it's very centrally located. That's been the blessing and the curse Mm -hmm. of this block the whole time. Yeah, right. Is that it's very centrally located, but also kind of funky and hard to work with. Yeah. It did not work out. They got tied up in court and funding, essentially, but they were trying to assert eminent domain over it. Now, given that this has passed to Kubota's family, I'm like, are you seriously telling me that this guy who hung on to this through the internment camps and through assault by a crooked prosecutor? Yeah. Now we're going to assert eminent domain so we can make a monorail. Leave them alone. <sighs> Leave them alone is right. When this lease expires, which it should be doing any minute now from what I can tell, so stay tuned. <laughs> uh, when this lease expires, <laughs> it is still in the hands of people who are recently descended from Japanese immigrants. So the idea that the city of Seattle, wow. after trying to take this away from him every way possible, would continue this into the second generation? Mm-hmm. Like, no. Mm-hmm. Grant them forever ownership of this. Yeah, exactly. Like, look, we, 
land back is a whole other thing that we could also get into, but not today. But just in yeah. the short term, can we not? Can we not with the Kubotas? Can we let them have their, their yeah. evil little Dorito that's brought, like, somebody's got to get some good out of this thing at some point. And it should be them, if anyone. Yeah. So I, I want them to stop getting the short end of the stick, and I don't want it to become another bland, uninhabitable, expensive thing to price people out of Seattle. Because that yeah. just breaks yeah. my heart. The last time I was in Seattle, and I know like you have a lot more experience with it than me, but I like exploring cities on foot, and I would just walk past building after building where I'm like, I don't know even what happens there. Nobody's going Mm-mm. in. Nobody's coming out. Mm-mm. It's just, it exists. Mm-mm. I feel like I'm in a video game they didn't finish rendering. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They forgot to add some AI mm-hmm. characters right there. Yeah. So something's happening. I mean, they must need the space for something, but it does not feel like it is for something that is happening in Seattle. That's the only way no. I can explain it. It is. No. It's not grounded in how people live. And. That's what I do like about this parking garage, is you know what? we I wouldn't want to try to find parking around Pioneer Square anyway, and I sure as hell don't want to do it. If we take away however many hundred parking spaces are in that monstrosity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's hard enough as it is, folks. Let us keep it. Yeah. Let us keep it. <laughs> I think that might be the moral of this story, is like... Just leave people alone. Just, just, just quit leave it. people alone is right. Quit it is the moral yeah. of the story, apparently. <laughs> cool it. I think I would have also loved to see the Seattle Hotel, but for sure, I want to save every historic building, and yes, that's not how it works. Practically speaking, I will say, as much as I love these old historic buildings, there are times when there is just no financial way. To mm-hmm. make this be a building that works anymore. And that's really a very big piece to keep for a conversation starter. Like a whole hotel. Just because it's neat. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you can't keep it just because it's neat. Yeah. I wish it had been taken better yeah. care of. I wish the earthquake hadn't hit it. But if they were going to take it down and put something else, at least we got something distinctive, even if it clashes. But... I mean, that's a Seattle thing, too, right? <laughs> Seattle is... It very much. Seattle reinvents itself so fast that one generation yeah. of architecture looks nothing like what comes after. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. if I'm going to say that I really appreciate the buildings that we got after the fire, it would also be fair to say I appreciate the buildings that we got after the earthquake yeah. and all the other things that happened because it is a living place and it breeds and grows. It's not a, it's not a showpiece. It's not a set. That's going to happen. Here is the takeaway. Other than that, there is a cool parking garage. The Kubota family has been dealing with the fallout of people not liking this parking garage for like 50 years. And we all need to absolutely get off their case and just appreciate this thing for what it is. And not at all the people whose dad signed a lease. This is not his fault. He was not involved in the design process here. He was not involved in the decision making. Take it out on this company that doesn't exist anymore, that alleged that there was going to be an office building. Or rather, don't take it out on anybody. Just say, this is how the cookie crumbles. Here we are. (laughs) Let's appreciate what we've got. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one isn't for me. Great, awesome. Go park at a diamond lot. Mm-hmm. Plenty of them in Seattle. Life is a rich tapestry. And sometimes it can isn't have big, it? hideous chunks of concrete in that tapestry. <laughs> <laughs> now I want to go see this parking garage. I never wanted to go see a parking garage before. I I've seen it. I know I've it. seen it, but I didn't, like, register right. it. If you're visiting Seattle, folks, it's real close to the start of the Seattle Underground Tour. Shoot, get your tickets, make it for half an hour later than uh, than you wanted, and walk two blocks, see this bizarre sunken parking garage. Whatever's going to happen to this lot in the future, I'll be very interested to see, because all we know is that when you are owning that lot, you are not in charge of what that lot does. That's what I've gathered, is it will move on to other people when it feels like it. Some murders might happen. Some illegal seizure of property might happen. Some corrupt prosecutors. It's pretty cursed, I think we have to admit. I did try to find ghost stories. All I got was, it's said to be haunted. Cool. Thanks for that. We checked, folks, we checked like seven different haunted Washington books. We did. To find a more specific citation. We did. So. We did. That's your little backstory so you can appreciate it all the more next time that you see it. You know where to find us. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And you can go to OuijaBroads.com. Check out Ouija and Broads the Game. And keep subscribing to the podcatcher of your choice, and we'll keep telling you stories. Next time you're in Seattle, I hope you do what you're doing every day, which is to live weird. Die weird. And stay weird. Thanks for listening. That was so good. You did it.